Hi there, everyone. Hi. Before we dive into this episode, we wanted to make sure that we posted a trigger warning at the top. This episode includes graphic content around the sexual and physical abuse of children. If you're sensitive to these topics, maybe listen to another episode. Yeah, our mini-sode's really funny from last week, so go check it out. Go check that out. Stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. What's up, everybody? Hello. Hello. Welcome to the 26th episode of The Long Road Home. Yay! We have half a year's worth of content now, guys. That's so crazy. It's nuts. What just the fuck is time? Literally, <laughs> just, I mean, less than a year ago, we were just sitting around thinking about how we should start a podcast. We finally set everything up, and we did it. We did it. And we're so happy that we did, guys. Thank and you guys so much for supporting us every step along the way. We, like, really can't thank you enough. No, seriously. How many downloads do we have so far? So we have approximately 3,300 downloads. Holy and shit. And we've hit over 47 different countries. Holy shit. I know. It's That's been, crazy. It's been a wild ride. Yeah. Let me tell you. It's all been worth it, though, guys. We've been enjoying the research. We've been learning and learning along with you guys. And so we just wanted to take just a quick moment and tell you guys thanks for sticking around with us for six whole months. It's crazy. Can't believe it. Here's to another six months. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Let, we're going to keep doing it. We're doing it. Let's yeah. do it. And then oh, ma- by the way, um, I'm Emily. And I'm Chad. Yeah. And we are your hosts. So thanks for being here, guys. So I have a story before we begin. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here in Montana, everything is slowly but surely chilling out, just like it is most places, I think, with the vaccine coming out and stuff, and everyone's being a little happier and stuff. And so we went and saw a socially distanced play. We did. I got to see theater, you guys. It was, and honestly, it was a great show. It was, it was good. Uh, our friend's girlfriend was in it, and who was also our friend. She killed it. She did great job. And she is also our friend. <laughs> yeah, just so everyone knows. And afterwards, they were like, let's go get a drink. And so us and then another couple, we all went out and we went to a bar. The first time I have sat down in a bar in uh, literally a year. Yeah. It was very, it was a strange feeling going in there, right? It was weird. I honestly thought I would like it more. Yeah, it wasn't great. And (laughs) I don't know if it's just like, those are just the bar people that are there right now, or if that changes in the future. I don't know, but maybe they were always like that. It wasn't wasn't that great, but I did something really uh, strange, strange, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm uh, my, I'm a friendly person. Don't get me wrong. We've, listen, we've not interacted with other humans that much in the last year. No, we have not. And so we were sitting there. We had sit in the corner, and this dude came up to us, and he was like, I don't know, he's probably in his early twenties. He's little, he's like boot cut jeans on, his button up shirt. Uh, obviously, you know, probably a real kid, happy to be at the bar. Yeah. And he was, he came up to us, and he was like, Hey, man, can I borrow this? Cause you're using this chair. First and of I, all, and he I, initially put his hand like right or right on that guy's shoulder. Yeah, he put he's put his hand on what the other one of the other people at the table and it's like I don't know. I think that's like power move. They people try and do that to be like, look at me, I'm hold I'm touching you. I'm, what do you think about that? Yeah. Trying to make you uncomfortable. Like, and so I didn't friendly. really appreciate that initially. It? And so when I drink, I tend to get uh rowdy. I guess is the word I would use now. That's a good word. It used to be angry. Now it's rowdy. Yeah. Uh, so I had I had had like three drinks, and I was I was like, I didn't even think drinks. that you were like. I didn't think I was either. Maybe I wasn't. But this know. dude, he's he's like asking about the chair, and uh, our friend looked like kind of confused. And I was like, just take the chair, man. And he looked at me, and he was like, really? I was like, yes, just take it, just leave. And he was like, all right. And he stuck his fist out and the, like he pounded it with the dude whose hand he was on. And then he stuck his fist out to me and I just looked at it. And there was I, definitely an obvious pause. I I was like, yeah, I mean, I did. I stared at his hand for a second and I looked at him and I just hit him. <laughs> I punched his hand. Like I, like I didn't like fist bump. I, it was like. It was, there, there, was, was, there was an yeah, audible, audible snack like in the bar crowd. Like I could hear the pop that when I hit him in the hand, and he just like reared back. and was like, you've been doing pushups, man. And then all I said was, get out of here. <laughs> I just <laughs> made it believe. He didn't say anything else. He I just shook know. his arms in the air and said, go on, get out of here. <laughs> I don't know what came over me. It's just been like the deep rage. It's a very weird has interaction. It's uh, been in me for a year. And I, for this person, 
just did the, something and my my ape brain went wild. You're I don't like, know what it was. Go away. Yeah, go away I just now. didn't want anything to do this, with you, this dude. This got on too long. <laughs> it was super weird and it was strange and I'm so happy to be back in society. It's really <laughs> great. I can't wait for more interactions like that because there's been a deep anger within me for four years and now it's just leaking to the surface apparently like Hulk Hulk smash I just didn't know I, I honestly, maybe I, I think I saved him bodily harm by punching him only in the hand I just never I don't know why I did it It was so weird I honestly expect a lot more strange interactions in the future if you think about the social deprivation that we have all faced in the last year it's fixing to be rather awkward yeah it's uh it's gonna be strange yeah but that's that's my first social interaction in a year, everybody. So uh, take take that as you will. Yeah. Anyway, this week we are talking about Satanic Panic again. This Woo! is part two of our Satanic part Panic two. episode. So in our last episode, we it kind of ended it with Doctor Pazder, his psychiatric patient slash lover Michelle Smith, and their book Michelle Remembers. As you recall, Pazder's book sort of impacted his growth in circles based around satanic ritual abuse, particularly police departments and uh, counselors and stuff like that. That book was used heavily as training material, and it was complete bullshit. Jesus. Yeah. So Not okay. (laughs) During this episode, we're going to be discussing the hysteria following the events we talked about in part one, including the book. In particular, we'll be looking at two high-profile cases, each of which involved a whole bunch of people. There are so many more of these, but we just don't have time to cover each and every one today. It's a giant list. Yeah. What we're going to try and do, though, is give you a sense of just how scary and ridiculous these accusations became and how they impacted innocent people for decades. So before we begin, let's tell everyone our sources for today's episode. All right. We have an article from the New York Times. We got some information from Wikipedia, Turn223.com, the LA Times, an article from the University of Michigan, and that's it. Yeah, a little short list, a lot of the information we got. For, it's kind of hard to get like a lot of information about a lot of these cases, which is another reason we couldn't do more of them. There are a couple high-profile ones that were extensively covered. Right. Others did not get the attention that these did, but they were still just, a lot of them had the same outcome, which we'll talk about later as well. So, let's start with the cases that began in earnest the panic surrounding satanic child abuse in the country. From 1984 through 1986, at least 30 defendants were convicted of child sex abuse and related charges and sentenced to long prison terms in a series of interrelated cases in Kern County, California. There was also an additional 8 defendants that accepted plea bargains that kept them out of prison. Over time, 20 of the defendants who were sentenced to prison were exonerated, the earliest in 1991 and the latest in 2008. In most of these exonerations, the children who had testified that they had been abused recanted their testimony. In all of the exonerations, there was evidence that the complaining witnesses, some as young as four years old, had been coerced or persuaded by the authorities to make false accusations. Awesome. Yeah, uh, this is how it started. Because that in itself is not abuse. Absolutely not. Um, We're going to talk about why that happened uh, towards the end of the episode as well. So... Most of the Kern County child sex abuse cases were multi-defendant group prosecutions, and this is usually the case in this type of uh, criminal, quote, activity that was going on. There was always a large group of people that were involved and accused, and each one got their own separate trial within the group usually. Wow, gotcha. Mm -hmm. This is pretty intense. Um, So let's start with the earliest of these cases involving Alvin McQuan, his wife Debbie, and their friends Scott and Brenda Niffen, all of whom were convicted of participating in a child sex abuse ring in which they abused numerous children. So, and yeah, that's what they were accused of, right? And it's not just like... I'm sorry, you said convicted of. And they were convicted, yes. Ah. That's sort of the harsh reality of a lot of these kids. And this is something that's very strange. It's almost like if you cast a wide enough net, you eventually catch the fish that you want, but you also catch a lot of other fish. That's kind of what mm-hmm. I took away from these cases. And uh, we'll talk about that later, too. This, this, is a weird, it's a very, this is a very weird event in yeah. American history. So, in 1980, the McQuans' daughter, Becky, told family members that she had been molested by her grandfather, Rod Phelps. A doctor examined Becky and actually confirmed that she had been sexually abused, and a report was filed with CPS, or Child Protective Services. After conducting an investigation in October 1981, CPS officials told police they had determined that both Becky and her sister had been abused by Phelps. The children's step-grandmother, Marianne Barbour, had a history of mental illness, and around this time, she suffered a complete mental breakdown. She began to believe that the McQuans had also abused their daughters and that the girls were not safe in their parents' home. 
and this is something else that you what? see again and again. So and the, the there's step-grandmother always, comes in? Yes, and there's always this sort of accuser that seems to come in. And typically, they have their own set of problems as well. And for some reason, they're the ones that seem to kick these events off. Well, who the fuck is you? You're the step-grandmother, though. She, well, maybe that's half the problem. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. So when Kern County officials interviewed the girls, both said that they had been sexually abused by Phelps and also by their father. They denied being abused by anyone else. The girls were immediately removed from their home and taken into state custody. Barbour then told authorities that she believed that the girl's mother should also be investigated. Although Debbie was cleared by a social worker, Barbour was given custody of the girls. Whoa. She then started making claims that the McQuans were running up a large sex abuse ring that involved other children. Both girls, now in Barbara's care, confirmed the existence of the sex ring in interviews with authorities. They began to make bizarre claims that they had been hung from hooks, forced to act in child pornography movies, and beaten with belts. The police found no physical evidence to corroborate their stories. So these girls are obviously being fed this stuff. Right. And well, yeah. Told I mean, to recant just... whatever their their grandmother, who is mentally ill, who has give, been given these people by the courts, these children, is telling them. Yeah. I mean... It's uh, it's really it's rough. Sad. So yeah. it is. Well, in 1981, as the allegations escalated, Alvin asked his friend Scott Niffen to serve as a character witness on his behalf. In further police interviews, though, the McQuan girls then said that both Scott Niffen and his wife Brenda were involved in the sex abuse ring and said that the Niffen's two sons had also been victimized. The Niffen boys were taken into custody and interrogated. Though the boys repeatedly denied there had been any sex abuse in their household, the police officer investigating them did not mention these denials in his report. That's not okay. <laughs> this is fucked up. Yeah. Finally, after being told by police that they would be allowed to go home if they admitted that they had been abused, they accused their parents, the McQuans, and other adults in the neighborhood of abusing them. On April 8, 1982, the McQuans, the Niffins, and several other Kern County residents who had been implicated were arrested and charged with abusing the four children. These poor babies. It's awful, and the story continues to grow. It really, it's, it's, it's an insane story just for the fact that, like, nobody seemed to care that this woman was batshit crazy to begin with. And it didn't, I don't know, we're going to see this in the, the other case as well, that... Uh, and this is sort of a large portion of why these things seem to happen, is uh, they believe the children. Well, and children shouldn't be interrogated for long hours like that to the point where they were told that if they admit something, they'll get to go home. That's not, that's that's child abuse. You're Like, you're holding children hostage, and you're putting them through trauma. Like, these kids, I'm sure, were just very, very I'm, anxious I'm adults. Sure it's a, I'm sure. If they are still alive, I'm sure they've been traumatized by this event. I and they probably still think about it every single day. Yeah. Uh, these these types of tactics are seen again and again in these satanic ritual abuse cases. It's they're basically leading questions, coercing yeah. the children into it. Well, like I said, we're gonna it's, it's hard to not get into it, but we're gonna talk more about the reasons why later. The defendants waited in jail for over a year for their trial. At one point, holding a hunger strike in an attempt to get attention for their case, the McQuans and the Niffins were tried together in 1984. All four children testified against them. Prosecutors also relied on medical testimony from Dr. Bruce Woodling, who had examined the children and claimed that he had observed a wink response in their anuses, which proved they had been sodomized. I don't know anything about oh, that. That's what he claimed. That doesn't sound good either. Not great. This doctor's checking out assholes. Which I'm sure that's like what you have to do when, you're, trying, when you're looking into sexual abuse, but like, it's, I yeah. don't, we can find new terminology. It is. Moving on. And I think maybe a little bit of like the harshness of what these jurors were having to listen to might have played oh, a part absolutely. in what happened. So the McQuans and the uh, Niffins were convicted by a jury on May 16, 1984. Alvin McQuan was sentenced to 268 years, Debbie to 252, and Scott and Brenda Niffin each received a 240 year sentence. So these people's lives got decimated. Yeah. Um, the McQuans and the Niffins appealed, but their convictions were affirmed by the 5th District California Court of Appeal on November 8, 1990. After considering no. a petition for rehearing, the appeals court modified its opinion to add that if the Niffins and McQuans were able to show that Dr. Woodland's, quote, wink response evidence did not prove sodomy, some or all the verdicts in the case might seriously be undermined. 
On March 14, 1991, the California Supreme Court denied the Niffins and McQuillan's petitions for review. So these people never stopped fighting for the truth, that they right. really had nothing to do. They never did any of this right. stuff. Right, this is their own children. It's, like It's really bad, man. Oh. Um, in 1992, both Niffin boys recanted their testimony. So they came back and took everything back years later. Wow. And they told, they told officials that police and prosecutors had pressured them into testifying falsely against their parents. In 1993, all four defendants filed petitions for writs of habeas corpus in the Kern County Superior Court. They also presented evidence that Dr. Woodling's supposed wink response did not indicate a history of sodomy. Numerous medical studies conducted after the conviction showed that this response occurred in a significant proportion of non-abused children, and virtually no one in the relevant scientific community continued to defend this response as evidence of sodomy. Yeah, I would assume that when a strange man is, like, poking around down there, you're going to pucker up a little Probably bit. Probably a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck it, some old ass dude. Fucker. All right, Sonny, let me see it. Which, by um, the way, I said, like, it was their own children. Like, obviously, abuse happens in the home more than it does outside of the home, but, like, how horrifying it would be to be accused by your own children of something like that. Yeah, this is, guys, this is <laughs> so hard to make a joke <laughs> during any of this. Like, this is probably not going to be a funny episode. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now. Um, in 1994, the habeas corpus petitions were denied by the Kern County Superior Court. However, the 5th District California Court of Appeal reversed the denial and sent the petitions back to the state court for a hearing. In August 1996, Kern County Superior Court Judge John Stube vacated the convictions of all four defendants based on the same petitions and exhibits. The recantations by the child witnesses, faulty forensic evidence, and substantial police and prosecu- prosecutorial misconduct. Alvin and Debbie McQuan and Scott and Brenda Niffen were released immediately, and within two weeks, prosecutors dismissed all charges. The, the Niffens later sued the county and settled for approximately $275,000. There we go. That was so, my next question, but also that's not enough they money. They spent that was years like in jail. A decade. Over a decade, for right? that much fucking money. Jeez. This is just the justice system at, its, at one of its lowest points, I yeah. think, and it's such a faulty system to begin with and to have something like this happen is so disheartening to me and have to read about like i knew that it happened but to read about what happened to these poor people is is very rich uh it's unfortunate it's yeah. terrible i was definitely not aware of the extent like i knew that i knew that shit was bad i didn't know it was this bad <laughs> well it just it keeps sliding down the fucking shit hole so this is only one of the cases there were six similar cases that occurred throughout Kern County. For instance, the testimony of five young boys was the prosecution's evidence in a trial in which four other defendants were convicted. John Stoll, a 41-year-old carpenter, received the longest sentence of the group, 40 years for 17 counts of lewd and lavicious conduct. For 20 years, John sat in prison for crimes he did not commit. It wasn't until his accusers returned to court that he would see the outside world again. Sampley and the three other former accusers returned in 2004 to the courthouse where they had testified against Stoll, this time to say that Stoll never molested them. In their late 20s, each of them said that they always knew that Stoll never touched them. However, Stoll's son has uh, continued to say that he has been that he was molested. So, uh, who knows what exactly went on there, but in in this case, though, the only defendant with a previous conviction of molestation was a man named Grant Self, who rented Stoll's pool house briefly. John Stoll had to wait until 2004 for the reversal of his convictions, but was released due to the new testimony. Self was sent to a mental hospital for sexual offenders because he had two prior convictions for child molestation. He was freed in 2009, but he was rearrested in 2012 on suspicion of child molestation in Oregon. And in July 2013, he pleaded guilty to sexually abusing three young boys and was sentenced to five years and ten months in prison. So what's the thought here, then, that he that he most likely did molest those kids, but then um, John Stoll kind of was also accused well, fa- and this is, was this also, is like was also accused but falsely I think this is what I was saying like the the net was so large that they were just sweeping people up that just that maybe weren't necessarily ever on their radar mm-hmm. this guy obviously was right but um I think this seemed to have ha- but it was looking- like oh we got the pool house and we got the guy that hired the guy yeah that does exactly the pool like he thing. he must yeah. have done had something to do with it right? right and and that's what I'm talking about this they're basically trolling 
for child molesters and they're picking up unfortunate souls along the way who just so happen to be there. Well, and it is, yeah, it's also, you know, playing into the, the idea of like this giant network of exactly. evil child molesters. Exactly. Yeah. And, when and you find, when you unearth one, you're going to unearth a bunch more. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this, this simply is just, it's not the case, at least not in these cases. Right. And I don't know if it ever really has been. Um, I know right. there's like, I, I shouldn't say that. I know there's like trafficking rings and stuff like that, and it's very real. But the suspicion that like your neighbor and six other people in your community are also are all doing this. Twenty years. That's yeah. I don't know. It's a weird notion to me, but um, this is. It seems like that's what they were going for. So we do have these small grains of truth in some of these stories, but the investigations on the on these cases were just carpet bombing everything. Right. Anyone who came into the courtroom being accused was going to jail. It's taken decades, but eventually Kern County ultimately dropped all of the molestation charges against 25 people who were convicted in the sex ring trials. Wow. And one person actually died in prison before their convictions could be overturned. Oh. Don't know. I couldn't find the name. Um, the effects are still lingering for others. One of the accused, Gerardo Gonzalez, is still trying to get his sex offender status repealed. To okay. this day. That is, is fucked up. It's fucking, it, it's under uh, Megan's law somehow. He can't, he just can't get rid of it. He has spent $50,000 trying to get this removed from his name. And it's, 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 to me, is one of the worst parts of the story. The jail time's super scary, but even after exoneration, these claims will follow you to the grave. It doesn't matter what you do, even if you did nothing wrong and spent years in prison, the title that a bunch of crazy people stuck on you is going to stick like a, it's a scarlet letter. I want to take a moment and say the names of the accused people that I could find that were exonerated, meaning they were found innocent of the crimes they had allegedly committed. So we, we this is just, I, I thought it was, it felt right to just say these names. Absolutely. Uh, these are the ones that I could find. Great. And so we have John Stoll, Scott and Brenda Niffen, Alvin and Deborah McQuan, Marcella and Ricky Pitts, Jeffrey Modal, Teresa Cox, Ruth Ann Croker, Richard and Johanna Cox, George Leroy Cox, Anthony Lewis Cox, Howard Lee Weimer, Kelly Leroy, Betty Palco, Donna Sue Hubbard, Brad Noakes, Mary Noakes, Kathy Scott, Cheryl Gonzalez, Gerardo Gonzalez, Reverend Willard Thomas, and Leroy Stowe. Wow, that's a long list. And yeah, that's only a partial list. I know. And we should also note here that prior to the start of these cases, several local social workers had attended a training seminar that emphasized satanic ritual abuse as a major element of child sex abuse and had used what else but the book Michelle Remembers as training material. Insane. It's That's insanity. It's uh, uh fucking sinister domino effect that happened throughout this time but period. like even if, if you just like take it to a government sh- sanctioned child protection service was using a, a woman's book about, mad libs. about satanic <laughs> yeah. rituals as training satanic mm-hmm. rituals as if like there's this well-established it's frustrating this is a very satanism and like as as if abuse is linked to satanism and like it's just so clear to me that mccarthy mccarthy's just written all over this shit it's just purity fucking culture it is it's it's very easy to get frustrated and angry looking at the stuff and to know that i mean it's already happened there's nothing we can do about it and it's it's, and it's, it's still gonna it happen. Really, it's gonna keep happening. Maybe that's why I punched that guy's hand because yeah. I've been reading about this <laughs> stuff. I needed to hit something. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, the the next one. Do you want to read or do you want me to yeah. to do it? I got it. Okay. So this series of accusations really kicked off the daycare ritual abuse allegations here in the U.S. The second large case began in 1984, and by the time it would be over, it would be the longest, most expensive trial in the history of the country. In 1983, Judy Johnson, mother of one of the Manhattan Beach, California preschool's young students, reported to the police that her son had been sodomized by her estranged husband and by McMartin teacher Ray Bucky. Ray Bucky was the grandson of school founder Virginia McMartin and the son of administrator Peggy McMartin Bucky. Johnson's belief that her son had been abused began when her son had painful bowel movements. What happened next is still disputed. Some sources state that at that time, Johnson's son denied her suggestion that his preschool teachers had molested him, whereas others say he confirmed the abuse. So immediately we're into murky water. Right. In addition, Johnson also made several more accusations, including that people at the daycare had sexual encounters with animals, that, quote, Peggy drilled a child under the arms and Ray flew in the air, end quote. Ray Bucky was questioned but was not prosecuted due to lack of evidence. 
The police then sent a form letter to about 200 parents of students at the McMartin School, stating that their children might have been abused and asking the parent and asking the parents to question their children. The text of the letter read, September 8, 1983. Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was, arre- was arrested September 7, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children, as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttocks or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of, quote, taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamp return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate the same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky or any member of the accused defendant's family or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. Whew. Okay. Yeah, and that, so that's how so this that one started. So that is when every parent um, threw up. Absolutely. it's uh, That's a fucked up letter to, to be getting. And now immediately 200 parents are like Associating asking these leading events questions with that man. Yeah, yeah. to their children. Exactly. Getting down on the floor going, has anyone ever taken your temperature? Just like asking questions too that like very easily the child can misunderstand. Like these parents yes. are not trained to handle this situation in any way. Uh, it's very heartbreaking. So bad. And I, so this woman Judy, she opened up a whole can of worms for these people for for what feels like no reason other than the fact that that maybe uh, mentally she she wasn't as there as people I initially thought. This. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, we'd be remiss not to mention that Johnson, the person that accused the daycare of this initially, was diagnosed with and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. And in 1986, she was found dead in her home from complications from chronic alcoholism before the preliminary hearing even concluded. So she came in and threw this down on these people and uh, just died. Wow. So she didn't even see what happened to them. Several hundred children were then interviewed by the Children's Institute International, CII, a Los Angeles-based abuse therapy clinic run by Key McFarlane. The interviewing techniques used during investigations of the allegations were highly suggestive and invited children to pretend or speculate about supposed events. By spring of 1984, it was claimed that 360 children had been abused. Holy shit. And that's, that's, uh, you also see these giant numbers. It's yeah. never like one or two children. It's which, just the whole school. It's the entire community. It was just a whole... Every time. Wow. Yeah. That's, in- that's insane. Astrid Heppenstahl Heger performed medical examinations and took photos of what she believed to be minute scarring, which she stated was caused by anal penetration. Journalist John Earle believed that her findings were based on unsubstantiated medical histories. Later, research demonstrated that the methods of questioning used on the children were extremely suggestive, leading to false accusations. Others believe that the questioning itself may have led to false memory syndrome among the children questioned. Only 41 of the original 360 children ultimately testified in the grand jury and pretrial hearings, and fewer than a dozen testified at the actual trials. I can't help but wonder how they chose those 12. It's a lot of kids to filter out, and I'm sure yeah. that they picked the ones that were saying what they wanted them to say. Yeah, and had, had like the most extreme stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Michael P. Maloney, a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychiatry, reviewed videotapes of the children's interviews. Maloney, testifying as an expert witness on interviewing children, was highly critical of the techniques used, referring to them as improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script. He concluded that, quote, many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner. 
Transcripts and recordings of the interviews contained far more speech from adults than children and demonstrated that despite the highly coercive interviewing techniques used, initially the children were resistant to interviewers' attempts to elicit disclosures. The recordings of the interviews were instrumental in the jury's refusal to convict. By demonstrating how children could be coerced to giving vivid and dramatic testimonies without having experienced actual abuse. The techniques used were shown to be contrary to the existing guidelines in California for the investigation of cases involving children and child witnesses. So. Yeah, it's a lot of funky stuff going on. A lot of funky stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, it's confirmed by like a, an actual child Like an expert. Child like an actual, an actual expert. expert. Uh-huh. And, uh, Who watched the interviews. Yeah, and a lot of the so-called uh, like experts that are on the side of the prosecutors they weren't experts at all they were people like padzer who came in and said i know this stuff i i saw a woman she told me her stories i read michelle remembers exactly a a lot of that i I read somewhere that one of the people that was uh one of the major i can't remember which case it was i'd have to look it up but one of the experts was just a welder (laughs) like oh my god i don't know it it seems like a lot of this is i mean it's not it doesn't it seems it was a lot of it was made up yeah So let's talk about these accusations that were being made by these kids because they're absolutely fucked up. The investigators and counselors and pretty much everyone involved had been brainwashed by satanic panic and satanic ritual abuse, and they were eating up anything these children said or anything the examiners fed the children that eventually the children then spat back out. It was alleged that in addition to having been sexually abused, they saw witches fly, traveled in a hot air balloon, and were taken through tunnels. Blah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. And then you start to see like this was extravagant. This is not something that these are extravagant claims, I should say. This is this was not all just like something strange happened to me. It was I saw a man flying through the air. Right. And so at what point do you start to differentiate the truth from what this type of thing, you know? When shown a series of photographs by Danny Davis, the McMartin's lawyer, one child identified actor Chuck Norris as one of the abusers. Some of the abuse was alleged to have occurred in secret tunnels beneath the school. So what did they do? They excavated. Several excavations turned up evidence of old buildings on the site and other debris from both where the school was built, but no evidence of any secret chambers or tunnels was found. There were claims of orgies at car washes and airports and of children being flushed down the toilets to secret rooms where they would be abused and cleaned up and presented back to their parents. Some child interviewees talked of a game called, quote, Naked Movie Star and suggested they were forcibly photographed nude. During trial testimony, some children stated that the Naked Movie Star game was actually a rhyming taunt used to tease other children. What you say is what you are. You're a naked movie star. And had nothing to do with having naked pictures taken. Nope. None at all. It was literally a rhyme, and they contorted it into a, a terrible accusation against these, poor, these daycare workers. And I feel I'm like so, I've heard that rhyme. I, I feel like I heard so that rhyme when I was a kid. bad for the daycare workers. Like, how do you... It's so hard to defend yourself against stuff like this. I mean... After, it really yeah, is. I mean, it's impossible. And I have... I would never in a million years, like say that we shouldn't ever believe cases a victim right of, but when there's thri- 360 students of one school yeah there's that are talking about secret tunnels and witches being flushed down the toilet and being flushed down the toilet you might want to check out what exactly happened you know yeah but maybe bring in some actual experts that leave. that's not what they wanted though <gasps> that i really don't think that's what they wanted this is once again this is a case of mass hysteria this isn't a a rational thought that's happening right now but these are real events that are affecting people. But and but there's there is no rational thinking going on. No, it's here's the thing: is people read that book, or had heard about the book, or had heard of somebody whose neighbor read the book, and then people panicked because they just thought they were living in their bubble and they didn't know that such evil could exist in the world. And now they're ready. Now they're ready for it. So the second that it rears its head, uh huh. The whole town jumps. Like, everybody's just been spooked. Yeah, it um, is. It's a fear thing. But it's horrifying. It is. The repercussions were bad. Johnson, who made the initial allegations, made bizarre and impossible statements about Raymond Bucky, including that he could fly. Through the pro- Though the prosecution asserted Johnson's mental illness was caused by the events of the trial, Johnson had admitted to them that she was mentally ill beforehand. Everyone just brushed over that. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me how they just ignored that part of her. It's mind-boggling. It, uh, uh, it's 
That's it. That's it. What is happening? <laughs> it's just mob mentality, man. It is. Evidence of Johnson's mental illness was withheld from the defense for three years and when provided was in the form of sanitized reports that excluded Johnson's statements at the order of the prosecution. One of the original prosecutors, Glenn Stevens, left the case in protest and stated that other prosecutors had withheld evidence from the defense, including the information that Johnson's son did not actually identify Ray Bucky in a series of photographs. Stevens also accused Robert Filibossian, the deputy district attorney on the case, of lying and withholding evidence from the court and defense lawyers in order to keep the Buckies in jail and prevent access to exonerating evidence. Yeah, roots run deep. It's uh, This is not just the communities, it's the police forces, it's anyone that was involved in the cases. Where, uh, they, were, they wanted to make sure that someone went down. Yeah. Well, I imagine, too, that you get so far in a case and you start hearing about the flying witches and all of this, like, crazy stuff. And then you go, like, oh, shit. Well, we got it. We just got to yeah. get somebody and close it up. Yeah, they were probably – there's probably a lot of ass covering going on. Yeah, exactly. So those were the claims made against these daycare workers. On March 22nd, 1984, Virginia McMartin, Peggy McMartin Bucky, Ray Bucky, Ray's sister, Peggy Ann Bucky, and teachers Marianne Johnson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler – were charged with 115 counts of child abuse, later expanded to 321 counts of child abuse involving 48 children. Yep, and that was Marion Jackson. Oh, thank you. Of course. In the 20 months of preliminary hearings, the prosecution, led by attorney Lael Rubin, presented their theory of sexual abuse. The children's testimony during the preliminary hearings was inconsistent. Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder, co-authors of the now-discredited Satanic Ritual Abuse autobiography Michelle Remembers, met with the parents and children involved in the case and were believed by the initial prosecutor, Glenn Stevens, to have influenced the children's testimony. What the fuck are they doing there? These fuckers are in the sauce. They are lost in it. Oh, my God. They were everywhere during this time period. They were so involved in so many of these cases, and they were just... Fucking, they made a book up. They literally made a book up and then traveled around the country spreading rumors of satanic ritual abuse, whispering in the ears of parents (laughs) just to keep selling their book and profiting off of it. That's, that is evil. That is evil. It's grifting at its finest. Seriously. In 1986, a new district attorney, Ira Rayner, called the evidence, quote, incredibly weak and dropped all charges against Virginia McMartin, Peggy Ann Bucky, Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler. Peggy McMartin Bucky and Ray Bucky remained in custody awaiting trial. Peggy McMartin's bail had been set at $1 million, and Ray Bucky had been denied bail. So she was like, this is really weak. Let's release almost everyone. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the thinking was behind... Uh keeping them maybe it was just that they were like the originally the original accused and it was like he didn't even have a bail uh he didn't even have bail set whatever uh so the first trial for these allegations opened on july 13th 1987 during the trial the prosecution presented seven medical witnesses the defense attempted to rebuke them with several witnesses but the judge limited them to one in order to save time save time what that's not what we should be doing here no it's that yeah it's not In their summation, the prosecution argued that they had seven experts on this issue when the defense only had one. I hate this. I hate it. It's so goddamn Uh, stupid. It's stupid. This is dumb. I'm going to need to go for a run after this. I ran for, I went for my first run in a couple years today, and I'm going to need to go like run this anger out. I'm going to go find some more hands to punch. Yeah. Let's go punch uh, some hands. This, like, my belief in the justice system was already like pretty much at all time lows. But like after reading this, it's it's been this way for a long fucking yeah. time. People have constantly been taking advantage of this of the system, and they this is fucking stupid. They didn't let them have the people they wanted to come up for the defense, and then they used that as leverage against the jury. And I'm sure jurors are fucking stupid. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that jurors are not. This is your average American, right? Well, you're just These watching people, the show, baby. Yeah, you don't see this back action where they've been denied their other witnesses. No, this is all entertainment. Yeah, to them. these people are eating this shit up. Absolutely, this is before, you're on this SRA. Yeah. You're on the satanic ritual abuse case. You go home and you fucking shove your nose up in the air and you don't tell anyone. You this is secret. Oh I'm no, doing no, good opposite. Work. You're hurling that tea. You're you telling. So? Ev- oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you're getting all your neighbors' inputs, like. 
Janice down the road, the local town gossip who has everything in her back pocket, all the town knowledge. She's just coming. Yeah, you got anyway. That was you, a long it really was, though. way it was of a, saying that, like, absolutely, it was just a bunch of gossip. It was a show. And yeah. I think they, it was an exciting court case for these people to come in and get to throw it. And all of a sudden, they're very important, right? They're getting the, a real inner, like, it was, it was entertainment for these people. In October 1987, jailhouse informant George Freeman was called as a witness and testified that Ray Bucky had confessed to him while sharing a cell. Freeman later attempted to flee the country and confessed to perjury in a series of other criminal cases in which he manufactured testimony in exchange for favorable treatment by the prosecution in other cases, in several instances fabricating jailhouse confessions of other inmates. In order to guarantee his testimony during the McMartin case, Freeman was given immunity to previous charges of perjury. So he's been charged for perjury. He's committing perjury. And they're like, you can just this once. You can do it. And we jumped around just a little bit there. But these people, all this stuff was happening during a very long time period. Right. This was a long, long series of trials and events that went on for everyone. God, what a terrible life for a, for so long. You're living under the shadow of this fucking court case and like there's nothing you can do about it but try and defend yourself. Right, and you're also in prison. In prison. And guess what? Guess what other prisoners don't like? Yeah. Child exactly. abusers. Exactly. I mean, as they shouldn't. I mean, right? Like you shouldn't yeah, like you child definitely abusers. Shouldn't. You know what I'm saying? Oh God! But you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> it's so hard to talk about this. It is you're really complicated. Dancing around it's, a ring. It's so complicated. It's, like, it's it's bad, but this is but what's it's like happening you're literally, is also bad. You're literally put in prison. Like the whole town turns against you. You're put in jail. Your children turn against you. You're put in prison, and now you're in prison for this horrible accusation. You're already going through the hell of that, and I would assume like getting getting beat regularly. Because you're an accused child abuser. Oh, you're getting more than beat. You're getting, uh, you're getting uh, hold. More than beat. Constantly. Let's just leave it at more than beat. Okay. On January 18th, 1990, after three years of testimony and nine weeks of deliberation by the jury, Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted on all counts. Ray Bucky was cleared on 52 of 65 counts and freed on bail after more than five years in jail. He was in jail for five years without ever being charged with anything. Why was he not cleared of all accounts? I don't know. I Why did they I do didn't... this? It's because, you know, it's because they can't admit that they were wrong. <laughs> the <laughs> justice system can't admit that they were wrong. They have to, like, hold on to a little something yeah. to go like, well, slap on your wrist, though. Nine of 11 jurors at a press conference following the trial stated that they believed the children had been molested, but the evidence did not allow them to state who had committed the abuse beyond a reasonable doubt. 11 out of the 13 jurors who remained by the end of the trial voted to acquit Bucky of the charges. The refusal of the remaining two to vote for a not guilty verdict resulted in the deadlock. The media overwhelmingly focused on the two jurors who voted guilty at the expense of those who believed Bucky was not guilty. Of course not. Back to the back to the media, right? Like they got to have that juice, the oh juiciest God. story. I'm sure they're eating it up. They're making big bucks off this story. They're like, loving it. They're loving. It. They're selling T-shirts out front. Ray Bucky was retried later on six of the thirteen counts of which he was not acquitted in the first trial. The second trial opened on May seventh, nineteen ninety, and resulted in another hung jury on July twenty seventh, nineteen ninety. The prosecution then gave up trying to obtain a conviction, and the case was closed with all charges against Ray Bucky dismissed. Yeah, all all of that. He had been jailed for five years without ever being convicted of committing any crime. All that for nothing. Nothing. These people's lives were ruined over this. It's this is uh the first part of this series was like kind of funny. It's like ah oh, these people are fucking crazy, right? right. Sometimes crazy people can do things that have very serious repercussions Sometimes for they have normal more, people. And this more is a uh, it yeah. becomes this is becomes very quickly a very dark story for everyone involved. Absolutely, and yeah. you know what the scary part is? This shit's still happening. Look up the Hampstead kids. Yeah, I'm just saying. Well, that is the the second case that we're going to cover. So before we wrap everything up, let's talk about what exactly allowed the justice system to systematically destroy the lives of each of these defendants. In part one, we talked about a changing United States, the end of the hippie era, the rise of the religious right, the fear brought into the household by news media. While that already feels like a lot, there were many other things happening during this time. Richard Beck, author of We Believe the Children and an editor of the literary magazine N Plus One, 
places such accounts in the context of right-wing resurgence in the 1980s. <laughs> Feminists had insisted... Boo. Well, well yeah, hold on. Wait, Fem- no, sorry. I'm saying, yay, feminists. It's, there, it's good. Okay, Feminist- just, just move on. It's okay. fine. Feminists had insisted that not all was well with the nuclear family, which they said was a site of patriarchal repression. Anti-feminists, evangelical Christians, and law and order advocates conveniently refocused attention on the children, away from the grievances of grown women. In this right-wing narrative, what was wrong with the family could be blamed on mothers who had joined the workforce and dumped their children in daycare centers mm-hmm. where Satanists paid them the attention that their mommies were. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But, but feminists had been early advocates for abused children, but it wasn't their primary focus. In the 1970s, feminists had talked much more about rape than about child abuse. But by the 1980s or so, legislators no no longer wanted to hear about the role of race and class and sexual violence. Of course. Yeah. No, that makes sense. What legislators and pundits were still willing to hear, to the exclusion of almost everything else on the feminist agenda, was that the country's children were at risk. Mr. Beck believes that an unholy alliance between anti-pornography feminists like Andrea Dworkin and the Christian right fostered the overly fearful climate in which school children were lectured about good touch versus bad touch and adults could be easily accused of the latter. This is super interesting because we're starting to see this weird kind of alliance today again surrounding things like pornography. Uh, we start to see certain leftist groups that are siding with anti-porn groups from the religious right to try and police pornography, although I think the two groups probably have very different intentions for what their outcome is. Exactly. But we are starting to see that again. This is very Just weird. Just a weird arc, yeah. It's a very weird uh, connection that seems to be happening around these types of uh, topics, I Right, guess. but I like how it started with feminists in the 70s trying to talk about how they've they've been abused and how they've been raped and it they basically the legislation just decided they couldn't hear those stories anymore well the right and couldn't so, cling so, to that because, right and so so, they, so then they they relied on child abuse and, and told yes, those stories instead, and which is just is like it isn't important and it is a thing but like i think there was also one in three women have been sexually abused yes they have um there's also the the during this time period, women are starting are starting to flow into the workforce, and it's just, it's happening. And so you start to see these traditionalists that are gross as fuck. Fuck them. Fuck traditionalists. I'm just going to say it over and over again. And, but they start to think like this is happening. We have to figure out how to stop it. Yeah. Right? And so it, uh, well, there we, must be something wrong here too. Yeah. Right. Like this can't just be okay. Yes, exactly. And we so we start to see just uh, this is more and more stuff piling into what's wow, going on so right now. It's so complicated. It is. It's it's a very, very complex web of events that, that happened that led to this. But as these social groups begin to coalesce around the thought that children were in danger, which is fine in and of itself, groups such as We Believe the Children begin forming. This organization's name is based on the notion that assertions made by the alleged victims of sexual abuse should be believed. This was ingrained in many, many people around this time with pretty much no reason to be. Uh, this is this group was built around the Kern County cases. Gotcha. Yeah, that so makes sense. They were immediately like, this is, we 100% think this happened. And this is where this organization came from. Right, it's and it's all a, a larger, like, in the larger context of SRA and, yeah. like, and like mass child abuse. It's yes. not it's not these little instances of it, it happening a good group. in the home. It's like this, it's a horrible, yeah. mass evil thing that they're fighting. Yeah, so this is not a good group. This idea was ingrained in many, many people around this time with pretty much no reason to be. Children are highly influenceable, and therefore their testimony can be influenced in a variety of ways. In an article published by the American Psychological Association, a professor at John Hopkins School of Medicine writes that children incorporate aspects of the interviewer's questions into their answers as an attempt to tell the interviewer what the child believes is being sought. Studies also show that when adults ask children questions that do not make sense, such as is milk bigger than water or is red heavier than yellow, most children will offer an answer, believing that there is an answer to be given rather than understanding the absurdity of the question. Of course, because children are just like instinctively trust trusting. They're going to like they're going to assume that the person interviewing them has the right intentions. Furthermore, repeated questioning of children causes them to change their answers. This is because the children perceive the repeated questioning as a sign that they did not give the correct answer previously. Children are also especially susceptible to leading and suggestive questions. Some studies have shown that only a small percentage of children produce fictitious reports of sexual abuse on their own. 
We do have to note that there are some studies that claim the opposite. They claim to have shown that children understate occurrences of abuse. I didn't have time to look up the numbers. I don't really know how many of those there are or what sure what sort of money is linked to those studies or anything right. like that. It's like going to be it's but it can be easily skewed. I feel like that. I think so too. Yeah. And that you know that is Ugh. we this is our opinions right now, but I truly believe that um, children are very susceptible, and I would believe the the studies that say that children can there's oh, they don't. I would believe that children will not produce this type of information unless they're being it's being like almost fed to them. I mean, every child at that school, their every parent at that school had a letter go home with them and started having these conversations with this child. And yeah. then they and then that kid had to go and go into a room and fellow students also had to go into a room with a stranger and tell well, stories yeah. and they're all talking about what's going on and like wow something everyone's acting kind of weird and now this doctor in a suit is asking me questions and pointing to a doll and wanting to poke my butt like it it's gonna be really confusing it's and highly stressful and my heart I'm sure just they're goes out looking for babies, a correct answer right those poor children that's so many kids that had to go through this yep needless it's just. It was handled so poorly. It is. It's fucking, it's, it was really bad. Um, regardless, it's easy to see how a combination of authority figures, leading questions, and peer pressure can lead to false testimonies. Yeah. So as the 80s drug on, we, we saw this strange combination of women leaving the household, a conservative fear of losing the old ways, and a rising consciousness in child abuse. There were also groups like the FBI reporting ap- apocryphal reports of s- satanic ritual abuse. Were, the FBI was going around spreading this stuff, fueling the flames that were already growing. Lawrence Wright, in a book called Remembering Satan, focused on fundamentalist Christianity's fear of a literal Satan stalking the earth. Elaine Showalter, in Histories... Spelled with a Y. Yes. Showed how the psychological establishment and the feminists within it, intrigued by trauma therapy, so-called multiple personalities, and a new belief in recovered memories, was primed to believe outlandish stories of abuse. Believing the victim became non-negotiable, with adult female patients, then with children, and even toddlers. And so those are a lot of the things that led us to uh, these cases and these court cases that happened. Um, That being said, like, it's hard not to... uh, We do, like... Support victims. Yes. Like, no, and that's we what definitely we're saying. Do. This is so complicated. This it's, is such an edge I, that you have to cross because, like, I mean, children do get abused, but one in three women are abused, exactly. are sexually abused. Men are sexually abused. Yes. Like, this is a, this is a horrible human issue. And I, I don't know. It's it's hard to believe. Like, just the, the stories that came out of this were obviously they were pretty fucking outlandish, right? And I found a PBS a document that we're talking about too. I don't know if they were. Uh, they were experts in the field somehow. I can't remember if they were uh, actual lawyers, if they were child psychologists, but they were just saying like there are just like adults, there are children that you can believe, and there are children that might be making stuff up. Right. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, I know. I I've worked in the school system, and I know I know of children who um, had certain certain complexes. Where growing up in telling outlandish stories, they received certain reactions. So now it's habitual for them to just t- like that's how they get attention is to tell outlandish stories, and it's really sad. Um, and luckily, they have people to work through them, work through it with them. But it's absolutely a thing. Like there are children that that's how they get that's how they get attention, or yeah, you know, like is. you like, oh, it's so complicated. It's hard to sift through it, but you know? I don't think you should ever. A 100% only a Sith deals in absolutes. Exactly. You can't look at every single thing and without question, accept it. Right. You just can't. Well, maybe before 360 children are put through this interview, we could have a more extensive interview with the the initial accuser who also was recently diagnosed yeah, schizophrenic. Yeah, exactly. Like... And that same PBS article, the people in there are talking also about how, like, this, what happened during this time period also changed the ways that, helped change the ways that children are investigated or children are talked to by people like investigators and stuff. And so it changed a lot of the ways that we interact with children. And it also, um, and overall, like, we have, uh, they've had, these cases had a long-term, they've had beneficial effects on the way our society handles sexual abuse allegations by children. And so we learned a lot, but along the way, a lot of people got crushed. Yeah, uh, it was mass hysteria. It was like we talked about With what the happens. Play. Yeah, yeah. When, when that happens, there's no stopping it it's mob until mentality. it's over. Totally. And that's sort of what happened with this. It just sort of like it just stopped. 
It is. It's very scary. Yeah. Well, like we said earlier, these are only two cases that we have time to mention in this episode. There are literally dozens like them, and most have the same outcome. The accused are found guilty and spend years in prison only to be acquitted after the hysteria dies down. Their life is ruined, and the parents go on living without a care in the world. The kids, probably not so much. Yeah. Um... It makes me furious because there are real-world places like the church where this goes on every single day for real, and nobody seems to be making a fuss about it, probably because this movement has become— <laughs> Catholic church. <laughs> yeah. Well, this movement has now become a hyper-conservative clown show. It points the finger at anyone that they deem unmoral. We could have talked about Pizzagate and QAnon, but we're not going to because fuck them. Fuck Fuck them, them hard. They've taken the legitimacy out of so many groups that were actually taking a serious look at issues like child trafficking and contorted them into some monster of their own making. If there was ever a slice of true concern inside of these moral panics, it's all but gone in this twisted version that we're seeing today. Yeah. And honestly, it's hard to tell if there ever really was real concern or if it was simply complete and utter paranoia. Some case accusations came from people bitter towards one another. One case involves an ex-boyfriend. Another involves a homophobic, drug-addled couple who, quote, didn't want no homo near their son. That accusation cost a 19-year-old Bernard Baron 25 years of his life. Ugh. Then you have the case of the West Memphis Three, which is just an absolute atrocity. Um, Donald fucking Trump. What? Mm. There always appears to be an ulterior motive behind so many of these accusations. The more you look into these cases, you start to feel like there was really no desire to help children, but instead it's just a simple, easy way to destroy someone's life. Well, yeah, and like get a little hatred out, right? That's that's what I see. It's it's just like ancient Rome and gladiators. It's like a modern day beheading. It is. It's uh, because I mean, it's so hard to to defend yourself in this type of case especially if you have no evidence. You, there's a lot of ways to prove that you did something, but there's not a lot of ways to prove that you didn't, right? Right. And so ultimately you're relying on a group of people that you don't know to to make a decision about your life, even though you've done nothing wrong. Yeah, and those people turn into a, a vicious crowd who just want to go after as many people as they can mm-hmm. and make it as big as they can because then that feels like like they they did something, right? Like they... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Man. This is it's a really to touchy understand. subject, it and is. it was hard to 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 do the research on it because it is very touchy. And uh, you know, you just they cast a wide net. Some things that happened, they they did catch one or two people, right? But they just and those people do exist in the world. And they do, but is this the way we should be going about it? I don't think so. Right. But my takeaway is just don't work with kids. It doesn't doesn't matter. My takeaway is if you, if you even if your heart's in the right place, do not work with children. Their parents fucking suck, and they'll eat you alive the second they get the chance. This country does not care about teachers, true. even less so about daycare workers. So maybe just get a job in IT. Yeah. I really that's that's what I learned today. <laughs> just don't even. Don't even try. It's not worth it. Yeah, just go show someone how to open their email instead. It's way easier. It's going to make you more money, and you might not go to prison for it. Good advice, Chad. Yeah, that's the episode, guys. We know this was a hard one to get through. Yeah. So thanks for sticking with us. It was very intense. Um, but I feel like I feel like I needed to know it. Yeah, the story must be told, right? Right. Um, it's it's good to let people know these things because it happened. Like, and I had no idea it was that bad. You right. Know? So it's. I'm glad that we're sharing this information with our with you, the listener, and I, I hope that you took something away from this because I yeah. think we did. Lessons were learned. Well, by some. By some, absolutely. And that is the episode, though, guys. So hey. thanks for sticking with us. Uh, quick couple of announcements. Uh, stickers are on their way. We'll be posting those somewhere on the internet for you to purchase if you'd like one. They're holographic, <gasps> shiny. Yeah, I'm working on a new logo as well. The aesthetic's going to change. We're going to go. A little bit of a glow up. It'll be a vibe. I think so, once we <laughs> figure out what we're going to do. Um, also, we are not going to be having a regular episode next week. We are taking a yeah. slight break to work on some marketing stuff. Uh, my birthday is on Saturday Woo! as well, so we're going to be just hanging out and relaxing, and I won't have to edit any audio this week. Aww, and that's my birthday happy present. Happy birthday, Chad. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening today. And we'll be back, not next week. We'll, we'll have a mini-sode we next will. week. We'll have an maybe, extra mini-sode Maybe out. two. We don't know yet. I think so. And then we'll be back to regular scheduled programming after that. Yes. So, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank don't, you. For, yeah, thank you. Don't forget, <laughs> you can find us on Discord. You can find the link to that on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod. 
It's totally free. Come hang out with us. We post source links. We post pictures, dank memes, scary stories. We'll talk to you about pretty much anything. And uh, if you need someone to talk to after this episode, let us know. And we do post stuff on Instagram and Twitter, too. So give us a follow on there as well. Yeah, you can also find us on Facebook at The LRH Pod, and you can reach us via email at Show at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast if you'd like to contribute. There are three tiers you can subscribe to monthly. There's a couple little goodies you'll get with that, and that will continue to grow as we grow. So you can hop on there and check us out as well. Yeah, we appreciate the support, you guys. Oh, and maybe this will be over on YouTube soon. To all of our YouTube listeners, thanks a bunch for listening. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. Please do. Well, the, they're two they're two separate buttons. There are. We don't know how you. But both the buttons. Just hit both. I don't. They're never gonna make me buy RedTube. Not <laughs> RedTube. That's a porn website. That's what is it? YouTube Buster. Red. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, if you're listening on Apple, leave us a rating <laughs> and a review, please. We love those. They're gonna help us get on that new podcast page and get us all over the world. Yeah. So. Please do that. And that's, that's all it. the things. Yeah, for now. So thanks for listening. We'll have a mini show next week. Then it's back to regular scheduled programming the week after that. Thank you. And as always, thanks for joining us on The, the Long, Long Road, Road Home. Home. We'll see you guys in a little while. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. See you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. Ah, thank you. <laughs>